In April of 1994, grunge lost its undisputed king, Kurt Cobain. The genre had become so mainstream by this point that even your parents seemed to be suiting up in flannel shirts and Converse. Record labels were doing their best to lump anything with distorted guitars into the grunge category, whether it fit the sludgy underground mold or not. The timing couldn't have been more perfect for Weezer, who released their debut album less than a month after Cobain's death. It's hard to imagine, say, Alice in Chains drawing inspiration from 50s doo-wop and 60s pop, but Weezer effortlessly married loud guitars and vocal harmonies, major keys, and playful lyrics. This wasn't a backlash to what was going on in the music industry. It wasn't a breakthrough or a new sound. It was simply well-written pop music. Today on Hidden Jukebox, we discuss Weezer's eponymous 1994 debut, aka The Blue Album. This album's good, Jake. Hey, I feel like, you know, we did two months of albums that at least one of us weren't huge fans of, but I can safely say that both of us really, really love this album. I, I already forgot what we did before Third Eye Blind. Oh, it was uh, Rage Against the Machine, right. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, which I'm a huge fan of yes. and was surprised to find out you were not. Uh, but uh, this one, this one I'm cool with. Can I, can I tell you my uh, Weezer origin story? Yes, please do, because then I'm going to tell you mine. Okay. In 1994, uh, fall of 94, I was uh, back for my sophomore year of college, and um, we got tickets to see uh, a concert at uh, UC Riverside, and the the uh, the bill was Fatima Mansions, Live, and Weezer. Uh, had, and had Live put out uh, throwing, throwing Copper, copper? Yes, they had wow so i was super excited to see live and super excited to see fatima mansions because that's the kind of dork i was uh although fatima mansions is a great band um and didn't really think very much of weezer because i had only heard the sweater song and i was like ah, eh, this seems like a novelty song i'm gonna write this off <laughs> uh and uh then so so we uh the fatima mansions played and they were great um my uh, my friend ryan said uh I think there might be a little cock rock going on here, which I, I will <laughs> just stuck in my head forever. Um, and uh, and then Weezer came on and they opened with "My Name Is Jonas." And like as soon as the guitars came in, I'm like, okay, I was completely wrong. This band is great. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm wondering first off if I keep wanting to call him Steve Cropper, but their original guitarist who left the band before the album came out was named Jason Cropper. And he actually wrote that arpeggiated intro to that song, and I wonder if he was with the band at that time. Probably not. I think not, but I'm not sure. Also, I want to hear from all of our major Fatima Mansions fans that <laughs> listen to the show. <laughs> well, I mean, next next week we're going to do, uh, next month we're going to do Lost in the Former West, or Viva Dead Ponies. Oh, I do remember Lost, oh wait, maybe I'm thinking of Lonesome Crowded West, which is uh, Modest, Modest Mouse, Mouse album? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, I, yeah, I'm getting Modest Mouse and Fatima Mansions mixed up. So Fa Fatima Mansions, like, uh, to, to take a Fatima Mansions detour for just a minute, they're like what you imagine if you think of like a, a political 80s band from Ireland, but like they're... Wait a minute, isn't that you too? Okay, so <laughs> they're, they're what you think of if you... <laughs> Fair point. I forgot about you too. <laughs> 
if you think about a, a political 80s band of Ireland that thinks uh, you two are a bunch of wimps and this is really how you do it. Didn't everybody think that you two were a bunch of wimps? Fine, let's talk about Weezer. <laughs> okay, so um, I unfortunately can't remember if I saw Weezer on that tour or if I saw them in 1995 because they played the same venue in Portland both years and I was an idiot and didn't look for my ticket stub, which I probably have somewhere because I'm not a hoarder, but I never get rid of ticket stubs. It's the sure. way that I remember shit. And nowadays when they don't give you a ticket stub, I'm a crotchety old man who's like, God damn it. How am I supposed to even remember when this was or that I was here? I don't know how to search my Gmail. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I don't. Um, but I got to see Weezer, what I think was May or June of 1995, at the now defunct La Luna in Portland, um, a venue where I saw so many amazing shows that I couldn't even list them all. Um, but during the day before the show, they played a old record store in Portland called Music Millennium. There's still a location over on Burnside, but I saw them on 23rd and the place was packed, which meant maybe 200 people. And they played a five song acoustic set. And little did I know that they would be such a large band that would still be around today at the time. I just liked the sweater song and thought it was cool that I could skip school and go and see this show. I wonder if our mother even knows that I skipped school and went and saw Weezer on 23rd back in 95. I was um, 15. Oh, man, that's that's so great. Are they? Do you think they're the biggest band you've seen do a small in-store? For a small in-store, absolutely. I can't think of another in-store that I saw with a band that was like, oh, my God, can you believe that you even saw them at a place so small? I can think of like shows that I saw like that, but not right. in-stores. I think but the, they, go ahead. Go ahead. Now, I was gonna say, I think the biggest uh, the biggest band I saw do an in store for, and it was for like a very small amount of people, way less than two hundred people, was Everclear, and I can't even remember whether it was in L.A. or Portland. I, Lori would probably remember, but that's, uh, that's one of those teeny, bands, tiny in store. That's one of those bands where in nineteen ninety nine, if you had said that, people would have gone, "No way!" And now people would go, <laughs> "Yes, we could do that now." Yeah, right? yeah, 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 and and. I saw them last week do the exact same thing, except there were less people and none of them cared. Yeah, that's fair. They're like, I can't hear the album I'm trying to buy over your stupid music. Um, so, so the one thing that I remember from that that uh, in-store was they did an autograph session after the set, and Patrick Wilson already owned a cell phone at that time, <laughs> drummer from Weezer, yeah. and well- the other three, Matt Sharp, um, Matt Bell? Uh, is that right? I think, um, I think that's right. And, and, we'll look this up. And Rivers were signing. Patrick Wilson was in the back on the phone the entire time. So I have this signed poster somewhere of the Blue Album cover with three out of four of their signatures, and Pat Wilson didn't sign it. And I remember being 15 going, well, Weezer's drummer's a dick. <laughs> Because apparently he owes me something. Um, but it turned out he was just from the future. Right. <laughs> what? And is still a dick from the future? What does that have to do with anything? Well, I mean, he's from the future where everybody's a dick who pays attention to their phone instead of you. Oh, oh, I get it. I get it. He was just a man ahead of his But I mean, it's phone true time. that I think probably any anyone from the future would be a dick. <laughs> like Anyone. <that's- laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know, like the kind the kind of jackass who would who would actually get involved in time travel. Like you don't want to meet that person. It's going to be like Elon Musk. Well, I <laughs> I did figure out in the last couple of weeks after uh, tearing Third Eye Blind into asshole that a lot of people think that I'm a dick. So that's totally <laughs> yeah. Fair. But you knew that was going to happen. It, it, you don't oh, have yeah, to be from absolutely. the future to know that. <laughs> Um, so let's listen to a song and then we can discuss this album a little bit in depth. Okay, uh, should we begin to... at the beginning? Yes, let's begin the begin. feedback is so sweet so i read something this week the next line is my name is we peel we peel i always thought it was winfield and i'm like who the hell is winfield but then again who the hell is jonas and we peel was the name of i don't remember uh, wasn't wasn't it like like his oh oh sled? it was his sled it was his sled it's like it's like the citizen Kane of weezer songs uh, yeah, uh, I had a major misheard lyric like it wasn't even just like a misheard lyric. It was a lyric. I realized I was too lazy to look up apparently my entire life because I have never known what the last line of the first verse of this song is after things were better than once, but never again. Got any guesses? We have left the den. Nope. No. Nope. Um, so I had always heard it as we have we have left the game anti-violent, which was like that doesn't really tonally that doesn't really make sense. We've all left the den. Let me tell you about it. You just did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the thing, like, I I've listened to this album probably a thousand times, and so I tried to sit down this week and and listen to it a little more critically, and kept hearing things that are like oh i i get now like why this song works so well for me um and in this song the thing that grabs me from the very beginning is the way it starts out with that that acoustic guitar arpeggio and then you hear the feedback from the guitar from the electric guitar come in say saying like electric guitar is imminent um and then the the power chords come in uh, you know, do 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 do, and then the the electric guitar fades out again. We go back to the acoustic, and then it happens again. And the there's so like the, the way the the feedback is used to knit those sections together is just so clever without being hey look at me I'm clever. I I totally agree, and I picture being at. at- a Weezer show or any show where a song like that is written and everybody, even the ones who don't know the song know, get ready because we're all about to start headbanging in unison for a Mm -hmm. second. I love that feeling. 
The other thing that I noticed, which I, I read this in one of the articles I was reading this week about this album, is they <laughs> Weezer says that this is an album written almost entirely in down chords. Uh, what What's the right term for it? Down picking. Uh, d- downstrokes. Downstrokes. So shout out to my friend Mike Duddington, who said to me, I'm a music idiot. I don't understand any of the, the terms that you use. Oh, the terms wait, you wait use. till we get to only in dreams. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's like, you know, sometimes you guys sound like know-it-alls because you're using these terms and not explaining them at all. You're just expecting all of your listeners to know what that means. So the concept is downstrokes. You can play the guitar with your uh, pick going downward or going upward. And so most of the time to play a faster line, a guitarist will play down, up, down, up. They said they wrote almost this entire album just doing downstrokes. And you can really hear in the bomb, 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 like they're pounding the strings down. And I love that sound. And when you when you listen to anything that's not arpeggiated on this album, anything that's crunching guitars, it's like, oh, it's all downstrokes. Right. And it gives it more like like a you know bass heavy attack. Downstrokes are the sound of of uh, a Metallica riff. So totally. James, James Hetfield is the king of downstrokes. And it's just he can move his wrist very quickly <laughs> um, and uh, just like bang, 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 bang on the guitar. And it sounds great. Go ahead. I think the the overall electric guitar sound on this album is about as perfect as it gets for me so they were going to uh produce this album themselves they got signed to dgc records which was david geffen's kind of smaller shoot-off company david geffen is one of the most successful producers in the history of music and to kind of put together smaller bands and see what he could do with them he started this offshoot of geffen records called dgc some of the bands include Nirvana, Sonic Youth, Beck, and The Roots. Um, this album sold 3.3 million copies. Mm-hmm. He had some obviously major successes with this label, but the label did not want them to self-produce the album, and so they were like, who do you want to produce your debut album? And Rivers wound up thinking of Rick Ocasek from The Cars, um, and he ended up producing the album, I, as far as I know, he produced all of the Cars albums as well. Yeah, I believe so. Among, yeah, among many other things. And I I don't know if I could say that a lot of the sound of this album can be credited to him, but he did an absolutely fantastic job with it. And even the band admits, yeah, it came out really, really good. Yeah, I think he did have a lot to do with it. Like, I, I read a little bit about, not to go too deep into, like, you know, studio geekery, but, like, Ocasek was largely largely responsible for deciding like which guitars and which amps got played on the album and that is really key to what you're hearing right and I want to say something about uh, Metallica and the heavy metal thing oh yeah Uh, um, so we're not going to talk about the sweater song really today because everybody knows it and uh, I feel like people would be like yep yeah we know that that's a sweater song but uh, Cuomo is uh, quoted as saying the sweater song was the first Weezer song I ever wrote back in 1991. That's three years before this album came out. I was trying to write a velvet underground type song because I was super into them. And I came up with that guitar riff. It wasn't until years after I wrote it that I realized it's almost a complete ripoff of welcome home sanitarium by Metallica. It just perfectly encapsulates encapsulates Weezer to me. 
you're trying to be cool like Velvet Underground, but your metal roots just pump through unconsciously. Yeah, it's totally true. The riff is almost the same. Yeah, and and Okasik also said about them, I listened to the album in the car and I thought it was just phenomenal. Having no idea what they looked like, I thought they were a heavy metal band that had really good melodies. <laughs> So yeah. I never I never really thought of them as a metal band, but like the more I listen to this album, the more I hear them talk about it. It's like they're they're using metal type tendencies on a lot of the stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um they're it's it's hard to zero in on like exactly what is it that makes Weezer sound so different from Nirvana. And you can like pick out like a few a few things here and there. But uh, it's like interesting how such small changes can can result in such an overall different sound, right? Like, how does a band sound like like grunge, like metal, and like the Beach Boys at the exact same time? And I mean, I think that's like you know a, a common criticism of like a lot of probably a lot of the bands we've done on the show are, are like you know uh, when Stone Temple Pilots came out, just like you know they they just want to be Pearl Jam. And the thing is, if you start a band and Unless you are literally cover, even if you're covering Pearl Jam songs, but like if you start a band like we want to sound as much like Pearl Jam as possible, you're not going to succeed. You're going to end up sounding like your own thing that's influenced by Pearl Jam. And uh, it's because of those, you know, just tiny differences that you can't even control. Right. And and to be fair, Stone Temple Pilots do sound like Pearl Jam, especially Scott Weiland sounds like he's emanating Eddie Vedder. Sometimes. Sometimes, but they wrote great songs. Oh yeah, and, terrific and songs. Produced great albums. So it's like, in the end, who cares? They created major success off of that. Yeah, no. The thing I would say is like, you you don't want to hear music that's actually original. <laughs> yeah, very, very little is, and often when it is, it's like, oh, that's why I don't want it to <laughs> right. be original. Um, can we listen to In the Garage? Yes. remember this one from the concert i remember when they played this it was just one of those melodies that's just like an instant classic to me and speaking of downstrokes speaking of dynamics it it's the the same ideas and it kind of runs through this entire album but they do it so well where they start with this light little melodic intro and then go into the distorted amazing guitar tone with the downstrokes that they got on this entire album also speaking of misheard lyrics 
I was not a Kiss fan growing up, so I had no idea who Ace Freely or Peter <laughs> Chris were. And for years, I thought, <laughs> I thought that the uh, end of that second verse was, "I've got is Freeling." I have no idea who is Freeling is. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I is Fritz Freeling like a like a Looney Tunes guy? He is, but that's not what I was hearing. <laughs> I, maybe "is" was his nickname. Uh-huh. So I was here. I've got is Freeling. I've got me the Crips, and I knew who the Crips were. <laughs> well, right, because because back then you had to be either a Crips fan or a Kiss fan, one and, or the other. Well, and and apparently when is Freeling and the Crips are around, you feel safe in your garage. <laughs> yeah, no, that that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Exactly, um, like like the Crips are there, so they're going to protect you no matter what. Yeah, and and is Freeling like you can always count on that guy. Um, <laughs> I I think I had to look up I I like looked up the lyrics and then had to look up who Ace Frehley and Peter Chris were. Um this is embarrassing in retrospect. Um and then learned that uh Ace Frehley there was like a period where everyone in Kiss made their own solo album and Ace Frehley made a solo album called uh, Trouble Walkin and uh my friend Ryan, the one that I, that I went to the Weezer show with, he and I thought this was the funniest album title we ever, we'd ever heard and convinced ourselves that it was called Trouble Walking because he meant he had trouble walking because he had such a big dick, which <laughs> is not what the song is about at all. That That's funny because my thing about Ace Freely is that he's got a really weird twin brother named Deuce Freely. <laughs> <laughs> and... And and that the guy likes to poop with the door open because, you know... Because he deuces deuce, freely, yeah. Because he's deuce freely. <laughs> it makes sense. Um, <laughs> ridiculous. Oh, man. Is that... So the sound that comes in right after the uh, the harmonica intro, is that a bass or a guitar? Uh, I I think it's both. Okay. So, so one of the things that I read that they said that they were trying to do on this entire album... Um, is that they wanted the bass and the guitar to sound so together. And uh, Matt Sharp played a lot with chords and not with singular bass notes. Like, you'll rarely hear, like, a strong bass line. They wanted the guitar and bass to sound like a 10-string instrument working together. Oh, nice. So, th- so there's a very, very good chance that this is downstroke chords being played on both of them in unison at the same time. Uh, I once heard Chris Ballou said say that in in his band he wanted the bass guitar and the git bass to sound like a five string instrument altogether. Not yeah, right. th- I, I was gonna say it didn't sound like that at all. But <laughs> ni- nice try, guys. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll cover that album eventually too. Um, the has has anyone on Weezer uh, from Weezer gone on record saying like the the band that that like did all the arpeggios at this time uh, and earlier was was REM. Because like that's that's one of the thing that really you know Nirvana didn't arpeggiate. No, 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 nor did they have harmonies like this. Right. Um. And granted, REM didn't have like these three and four part harmonies that Weezer did. Um. But you can hear a lot of that influence, and I couldn't find anything anywhere that even compared the band to R.E.M., let alone was the band themselves comparing themselves to R.E.M. Yeah, that's interesting, because it seems it seems obvious now. On the other hand, like, literally every rock band at this time was was influenced by R.E.M. in one way or another, so maybe it doesn't even need to be said. 
maybe, but that that's one of the things about this era, this kind of just barely post grunge, are we still doing grunge era is it started to sound like this mishmash of where is music going from here? Do all these bands sound the same? Do they all sound different? Do they all sound like they're contrived? Like, like there was such good music coming out at this time, but was it original and who was stealing from who? And you start looking at like the timelines for this stuff. Like when you think about that, this album came out less than a month after Kurt Cobain died. Mm hmm. There wasn't time for them to go, well, we want to be the next Nirvana because no. they didn't even know that Nirvana was going to be gone when when this happened. And they're not really Nirvana-esque. They're not really even grunge. Uh, no. Yeah. No, they're they're doing a lot of things different. Speaking of R.E.M., by the way, I'm currently reading a really good book uh, called Cool Town by Grace Elizabeth Hale. That's about the birth of the Athens, Georgia music scene. It's really well written. Fascinating book. Recommend it. Okay. Um, the one other thing I want to say about yeah. In the Garage is I still get this song stuck in my head weekly. I, I don't know why. I don't know what it is about it, but without even hearing it, like it's to me, that is the sign of a very well-written song, except that I also always make the argument that some of the worst songs, my least favorite songs of all time, also get stuck in my head weekly because they're earworms. Oh, absolutely. This is a great, great earworm. It is. Um, yeah, one time there was the, the worst earworm that ever happened to me was it was some fucking Diet Coke commercial in the 80s or early 90s. I don't remember it now, thank God, but uh, it, it was like painfully, it was like stuck like a railroad spike in my head for several weeks. Then you must be really happy that you don't I'm have it I'm very happy that I don't remember head. it anymore. Somehow I'm cured. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come back like when I least expect it. I'm going to be on YouTube later and be sending you a few <laughs> Diet Coke commercials. Well, the good thing is there are thousands of Diet Coke commercials, so you're not yeah. going to find the right one. Um, <laughs> how about we listen to Surf Wax America? Yeah. See, it's foaming like a bottle of beer. The wave is coming, but I ain't got no fear. I'm waxing down to that Agoria Pass. I'm waxing down because it's Cause I don't like the so good but like also so silly well I, I want to talk about that a little bit because one of the things that that i keep noticing about this album and that that was pointed out in a few things i read is the lyrics are this really interesting counterpoint to the, the way the music is being written because usually you hear dark sad uh depressing lyrics and they go with dark sad depressing music you hear happy poppy love songs and they have happy poppy love music and rivers cuomo had this interesting way of writing songs about being a nerd an outcast uh love lost things like that and setting it to really really happy pop music yeah and just about every song on this album except maybe say it ain't so 
and only in dreams uh, kind of capture that like oh my god this is so happy and sweet and then you listen to the lyrics you're like oh no it's not it's really really depressing (laughs) yeah um the thing i noticed i think just now as we were listening to it is that um when he says uh, you take your car to work, I'll take my board, it implies to me that he's he's taking he's going to go out surfing, but he's going to surf to work. He's not actually skipping out on work. He's just You've never uh, you lived in California during the 90s. I thought everybody surfed to work during the 90s. Oh, they did. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I forgot. <laughs> the the people who worked on a boat with the, the old sea captain. Yeah, yeah. Yar, Yar. welcome to the boat. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's every day I arrived at work. <laughs> And was greeted with a hearty "Yar, welcome to the boat." <laughs> um, and then I then I had to like uh, peel shrimp all day. It's <laughs> amazing. So this song also has this arpeggiated intro, and then really crunchy guitars once once the verses come in. It, it the the whole album is formulaic, but in this absolutely great way. Yeah, like like it, I. I talk a lot on this show about how what was great about 90s records and the way that that bands wrote records in the 90s was that they it felt like they were trying to do something cohesive, not just like here's a single and a bunch of filler around it. It was here's a whole piece of of work that we felt worked well together. Yeah. This album specifically, they cut a lot of material in the end. Like, there's a, a lot of different speculation about how many songs were written for this album. Like, some, I think Rivers at one point was qu- quoted as saying that he wrote a hundred songs for this album, which is a load of shit. But there's at least six or seven really good songs that didn't make the cut. And it means that they were putting together something that they felt worked together. And this is one of these albums that you start at the beginning and you end at the end. And the songs work well on their own, but it works really well when you listen to them in order. Okay, that's a good segue to a couple of things I wanted to talk about. Um, first of all, have you heard the episode of <sighs> Song Exploder, where uh, Rivers Cuomo is talking about a song from the uh, the White Album, the Weezer White Album, and uh, about how he wrote the song by consulting his songwriting spreadsheets? No. Okay. So at least at the time that that album came together, he was he was using a system where he had spreadsheets where he could look up like I need this many syllables with this with a stress in these these places. Uh, you know what did what have I come up with in the past that would fit that, and how can I put it together with some other things from the spreadsheet? Holy shit! And when I heard this, I was like, Yeah, that's sort of not surprising. Uh, by the way, I got to get back to something. Yeah, yeah. Brian Bell, not Matt Brian Bell. Bell Brian Bell, thank you. Brian Bell. What, what was your other thought real quick? Uh, my other, I wanted to ask you, what are your, if you have any, favorite Weezer songs or albums outside of the first three? Ooh. Because we, we, really? we can all agree the, the first three are pretty unimpeachable. There's maybe a little more debate about the third one than the first two. And then after that, it's kind of all over the place. I dropped off the Weezer fan wagon after Pinkerton. Okay. I thought that the Green Album was pop crap. Oh, I like, like the Green Album. I would have to go back and listen to it now because I have a tendency to go back and listen to things and think, okay, 
I didn't give this enough of a chance. This is really good. But I didn't buy the album when it came out. And so my exposure to it were, was Hashpipe and Island in the Sun. Mm-hmm. And Island in the Sun is catchy, but not my favorite. And Hashpipe, I think, is one of the most grating songs on the planet. Yeah, it's not It's not one of their best. There's, there's a lot of stuff. Photograph, I think, is a terrific song. That's on the Green Album. Yeah. Um, I think the White Album is a good Weezer album. Uh, I think, uh, what's what's it called? Um, the, the drug song on that album. Uh, it's going to come to isn't me in it just called, a Isn't it called We Are All on Drugs? Yes. Uh, no, no, no. That's, diff- that's a different song from a different album. <laughs> that's a different drug song. <laughs> Do You Want to Get High? Okay. That that is a like could have come could have been a Pinkerton outtake. I think that is that is a really solid Weezer song. Well, so to answer your question, basically all of my favorite album songs by them are off the Blue Album and off of Pinkerton. Yeah, of course. And I would have to say probably the Good Life, um, the world has turned and left me here, and my name is Jonas are what stick out to me. Even um, though in the garage is what gets stuck in my head all yeah, the time. Yeah, the good life. That is so good. That's one of my favorites. I, I want to say here, we almost did Pinkerton. We were so close to doing Pinkerton instead of the Blue Album because I think we both like that album more. But uh, this is a more well-known album. And one of the things I found, which I was shocked, uh, we don't discuss this much, but one of our criteria for this show is that an album has to have sold at least a million copies. Pinkerton was released in 1996, and it hit 1 million sales in 2016. Wow. Only took them 20 years. That's so amazing. Some, somebody a couple weeks ago said to me, well, you can't do Pinkerton. I mean, that's like one of the biggest commercial flops in history. I'm like, no, it's not. That album sold great. And so I had to look it up. I'm like, wow, that album was a total commercial flop. <laughs> Yeah, no, it didn't do great originally. At at all. Like like apparently the record company w- was beside themselves. Like like uh, they couldn't believe it because they hit pay dirt with this album. I think I made a might have reviewed Pinkerton for Microsoft Music Central when it came out. Um That's not that's not name dropping. That's uh, oh, that's humble bragging. That's what that is. It's not. It's uh <laughs> <laughs> because nobody remembers that, um, but I remember having a conversation with uh, with one of my colleagues uh, and uh, arguing about whether Pinkerton was a good album, and I I thought it was. It was a great album. That reminds me, uh, Buddy Holly the video uh, was filmed on a completely recreated set from Happy Days. Yes. They got permission from the producers. Rivers originally didn't want to do it. And when they showed up and they saw what Spike Jones, who was a very famous video producer, mainly for the Beastie Boys, what they saw when they saw what he had created, they couldn't believe it, and they all bought in. and And they're like, "Yes, th- this is a great idea. This is absolutely amazing." Well, what I did not know is Microsoft, without Weezer's permission, oh, I heard about this, took that video and put it into the windows 95 setup so that when you were loading windows 95 for the first time on your computer and want to see what it could do you could play weezer's buddy holly holly video built into to windows 95 oh windows 95 at at first rivers was like 
Microsoft is stealing from us. We have to sue them for everything that they're worth. And everybody around was like, do you understand what this company just did for you? And apparently the the sales of the Blue Album jumped by like 500,000 within the weeks after <laughs> Windows 95 was released. Oh, and man. Anybody who didn't know who Weezer was knew who they were after that. Because when you think about what it was like when Windows 95 came out and what a computer could do before that, you couldn't watch music videos on a computer. No. And, and all of a sudden it was like, this processing system can show me an actual music video. It was amazing. Yeah, it'll be like two inches by two inches, but you can watch it. But but your homies are totally dissing your girl yes. on your computer screen. Yeah, well, they, I mean, they they could do that in, in plain text before that. Um, and they would. <laughs> Let's listen to Say It Ain't So. That's why I hired those Crips. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And is Freeling. Yes. probably about as much as, as we're allowed to play and then some <laughs> um by far weezer's biggest hit of this album at least was it um yeah it it hit number 10 on the billboard 200 okay. um uh yeah number 10 and undone and buddy holly which were the other two uh one of them reached number 34 one of them reached number 17 um this was a big hit it was actually filmed in the garage where Weezer practiced. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen the video for this. It it was very, very popular. This is about um, his dad being an alcoholic uh, and his parents getting divorced due to it. This is one of these songs where it's like sad lyrics, sad song. Yeah. But, but it's another just really, really well-crafted pop song. But that's what it is, a pop song, which... Brings us to the question that we want to ask this w- week, uh, which we brought up on the last episode, the Third Eye Blind episode. <laughs> yeah. Why do we hate Third Eye Blind but love this? What is the difference between what they're doing or these two bands? I mean, I can make some shit up, but you know, there there is no uh, objective reason that one is better than the other. Certainly. Um, 
I find the guy from Third Eye Blind more annoying. Um, I think the the songs, uh, you know, don't have as much aggression to them when needed. Um, and uh, I don't know. What, what, what do you think? Well, I should point out here that Third Eye Blind's self-titled debut sold almost twice as many copies as this album. Sure. But, but if somebody had asked me a month ago which was the more successful album, I would have said without question, I'm sure that the Blue Album sold like twice as many copies as Third Eye Blind's debut. So as boring an answer as it is, it is a personal preference thing. Yeah, of course. You know, there's there's no way that anybody's ever going to listen to what we have to say and go, well, I hated Weezer before, but these guys obviously have convinced me that I was wrong about it and I'm going to like them now. Just like a bunch of people telling me Third Eye Blind's self-titled debut was probably their favorite 90s album did not change my mind about how I felt about Third Eye Blind. Yeah, but someday, Jake, you and I are going to die and go to indie rock heaven where the thing you can do in indie rock heaven is you can speak to God directly and ask uh, God to weigh in on like, you know, uh, which which is actually better, like um, Neutral Milk Hotel or Broken Social Scene. And um, and God, God's like, whichever, whichever one you like better, that's going to be God's answer. And that is well, indie well, rock heaven. Wait, wait a minute. Bro- or uh, Neutral Milk Hotel has that song where he keeps saying, I love you, Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure that's sold. <laughs> Good point. God, God, God on Neutral Milk Hotel. Yeah, There's no right. question there. Uh, we'll, we'll see what he thinks about Third Eye Blind, but that's a ways down the road, I think. So it, I, I don't think it's fair to say, like, like, there's obvious differences between these two bands. They were both writing pop music, but they were both writing their own pop music. And the beauty about music is it's all personal preference. Like, I'm, I'm never going to be a big fan of certain artists, but it doesn't mean that my opinion counts in any way, shape or form. Right, of course. And like, I think I was just having a conversation about this with my family about, family about how like the easiest thing in the world to do is like ascribe like a like a lot of meaning or some sort of like moral element to what music someone likes or doesn't like. And unless they're into like racist music, it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, it, it, it doesn't. I mean, how, how far do you go before it's like, okay, now I can judge you. Now you've pushed it too far. I can totally judge everything that you're saying about this. Yeah, so see, George, Jake isn't the music fascist. Fa- uh, never mind, I can't even say fascist. <laughs> you, 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 you tried. It was, it was, a, good, it was a good attempt. Um, so with the time we have left, uh, Matthew wants to spend 20 minutes discussing the closing Conservatively, 20 track. minutes. All right, let's do it. Conservatively, 20 minutes, only in dreams.
All right, I'm just going to stop it right there. We don't even need the the vocals. You go listen to the song. It's eight minutes long. It's a great song. Uh, but this is really the part I want to focus on. And you can you can talk about the bass also if you want. It's a wonderful bass sound and bass riff. But and and after after I said this album really doesn't have single solo sounding bass bass lines. There it is. There's there's your solo bass line that doesn't go with the guitar. Yeah, it's beautiful. But okay, so this song to me like achieves a a real like dreamy quality to go with the the title and the subject matter. And I tried to listen for what is it that is doing that for me at least. And the answer I came up with is the acoustic guitar that that comes in like right after the bass riff at the beginning is doing something interesting. And what it's doing involves something called pedal point. Uh, And pedal point is one of these things that all musicians know about and nobody else has any reason to give a shit about. But I'm going to I'm going to like plow through plow ahead with this anyway, because because I think it explains something interesting about this song. So what pedal point is, is and Jake, please feel free to interrupt me anytime because you went to music school and I didn't. It is anyway. What's that? I do anyway. You interrupt me anyway? Yeah. Yes. Um, Pedal point is when there is a chord progression, so like the harmony is changing, and there is a single note that is being played over and over or held as underlying that progression and sort of holding it together in a way. And usually it's the bass note, the lowest note. Sometimes it is a middle note that's not particularly low or high, and the most well-known example of this is um, the Beatles' Blackbird, which uses pedal point in a really, really uh, characteristic way. And in this song, you have what's called an inverted pedal, where the note that's being held throughout the chord progression is the highest note, and in this case, it's a D, and what it sounds like to me, and pedal often has this this sound to me, is that the the music is trying to move ahead, but something is sort of pulling back against it, and it's and it's sort of running in place, and that is a huh. very dreamlike quality to me. And no no one who is not like a music geek is going to like literally hear that, but that is a thing that's going on in the intro and the verses of this song that I think helps to like sort of make it give it that levitating quality. Questions from the class. Pedal um, comes out of jazz originally. Mm-hmm. Um, I was... think it comes out of classical originally. Okay, th- that's that's fair. Um, I I am a, j- a student of jazz sure. originally, and pedal would be used mostly in a bass line, not in a, a melody like this. Right. Um, but it would be a way of kind of creating tension followed by release. And so when when you're talking about a note pulling back on the momentum of a song, pedal point can work that way really, really Mm -hmm. well. Now, I've never thought of it in terms of this song because I'm so bass-centric that I always tend to listen to the bass line and what it's doing. I like the way that this song moves around this continuous bass line and the way that melodies are created over this kind of droning thing that Matt Sharp is doing over and over again. Nice. Um, 
now you have a lot more to talk about here so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do all of it like but one one thing i noticed when i so i picked up the acoustic guitar of course and was playing through this and i'm like oh there's another well-known kind of moody rock song that not only uses pedal in the same way but uses the same note um and i bet now if i look there are a bunch of other songs that have similar types of chord progressions but it's disarm the smashing pumpkin song oh yeah, yeah. um like it's just like really hammering on that high d just over and over and uh it sounds great um so first off this eight minute song builds really really yes. well it one it it's hard to write an eight minute pop song it's pretty it's damn near impossible because it will just lose people like people get bored part way through you, you don't hear singles that are eight minutes long uh, it it just normally doesn't work. And this song has this way of building and there is this strong, strong kind of jam buildup at the end of the song uh, where the, the entire band moves together. And it's so well done and so different from everything else on the album where it feels like a concise pop song. And for me, this is where Weezer start to lose me not this song but oh but i thought that what made them such a great band was matt sharp's kind of point counterpoint to rivers cuomo the falsetto voice that he had the way that he played bass the way that he wrote songs the two of them together to me were what really created weezer's sound even though he's not really credited to writing songs on this album. And when he left the band, they kind of lost me and they went through a revolving door of bassists. And I still look back at Matt Sharp and what he did with this band and the sound of the harmonies and everything. And this song kind of embodies that for me, like what he did for this band and how great he was in terms of their sound. How do you feel about the rentals? I didn't like the rentals. I still, I still sometimes get that one rental single stuck in my head. You know, friends of P. Yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder if Deuce Freely likes friends of P. I think, I think Deuce Freely loves <laughs> friends of P. <laughs> I think Deuce Freely is friends of P. <laughs> so dumb. All right, and, and, I think and we're we've, done. We've, and we've digressed into childish humor again. <laughs> cool. So yeah. So we we went to we we spent a semester in music school and uh, and got a degree in poop jokes. So uh, yeah. It, it, I mean, most music school was actually spent on a boat that I took a surfboard <laughs> out to. Just so you know. Yeah, but that was that was just how you got to work. Yar, work on your pedal D. <laughs> D. All right. Find us on Instagram at instagram.com slash jukebox hidden find us on facebook at facebook.com slash hidden jukebox find us at our own website hidden jukebox.com find us on multiple podcast platforms tell your friends about us we need more listeners i'm telling you we're only going to start making mountains and mountains of dollars if more of you start listening we need and a boat we need to get a yeah, boat we... for other people to surf up to and work for us I don't once. even have a goddamn surfboard. I need to get a surfboard before I get a boat. I don't even Help have us wax. Out with our boat and surfboard. <laughs> I don't even have America. 
why why are we backwards on uh, on Instagram? Was was Hidden Jukebox already taken, or was there some sort what's, of like mix up weird, in the space time continuum? What's weird about Instagram is you sign up for a new page, and they automatically give you a name if the name that you put in is already taken. Oh, so that's okay. what it spit back at me, and I'm like, I like okay, it. Apparently, apparently we're jukebox hidden. It sounds like an you onion know, headline, you know, area jukebox hidden. <laughs> Uh, Florida man jukebox hidden. Exactly. So until next time, I'm Jake Amster. And I'm Matthew Amster Burton.